Hello, students, greetings, academaniacs, and uh, a great big good morning to anyone else who happens to be listening. Welcome to the RPG Academy Show and Tell Special Bonus Edition. Uh, I am everyone's favorite co-host, the Caleb G. Today I've got a very special guest in the virtual interview loft, Mr. J.M. Perkins. Hi, hi. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be doing this. Thank you so much, J.M. It has been uh, an interesting story getting you and I together here <laughs> to have this conversation. It is a saga foretold for generations. An epic saga to be told to our children's children's children. <laughs> Well, and I just have to say thank you so much because you did the lion's share of the work in making this happen, and I really appreciate that because I love RPG Academy. Oh, thank you so much. That is very kind and very nice to hear. I love your work. I'm very impressed with everything you're doing. Uh, so let's go ahead and talk about what you're doing. Otherwise, we'll probably just sit here complimenting each other for an hour. <laughs> uh, so, JM, you are uh, taking on and creating a very unique project it's not something that has never been done before, but it's something that has not been done in your exact way. So why don't you tell us what you're doing and why it is so goddamn cool? Yeah. So my big project right now, and we're just about to launch the Kickstarter, I believe it'll be today, is the City of Saltlands, which is a campaign setting. Um, I'm statting it for 5e and Pathfinder. And it's this big, evil fantasy metropolis with a twist. And the twist is, this is a city built around the perpetual butchery. I shouldn't say built. Uh, fueled and fed by the perpetual butchery of the Tarrasque, uh the regenerating, unkillable kaiju of D&D fame. So, yeah, um, I think what gives it a unique twist, like you said, other people have done this idea of eating regenerating creatures. I think what I bring to the table is, because of, in part of my background as a survivalist, I think a lot about logistics and how important it is to feed people. And so I've just been teasing out all of what this means to build an entire society on this one food source that you're torturing, but will always feed you, and kind of what that would do to the culture and to the society, um, what are the secondary effects of that, who benefits, who suffers, and ultimately just trying to present this for the people who live there as where they live, even though for us on the outside, it seems alien and weird and fantastic. I love everything about this campaign setting and this idea. The Trask is one of those creatures in the Monster Manual that I always love, mm -hmm. but never have been able to successfully use in a game. And you have taken this creature and done something so unique and so different with it. It's one of those moments of... Well, yeah, why didn't I ever think about just getting it into a game in some crazy way like this? And not only have you done it masterfully, but you've built this entire economy, this entire society. You, you've developed a campaign story around it in such a clever way. Um, so where did the idea come from? Were you just flipping through the book one day and said, oh, look, the giant unkillable thing. What if someone was living on top of it? So, uh, the idea actually was uh, originally made by a guy named Thomas T, and there's a lot of prior art um, in terms of people using troll otters, but on the RPG Net forum, there was a guy named Thomas T, and he mentioned, oh, what if you bound the Tarrasque and built a fort around it? Um, and I looked, and there was just hundreds of posts about this idea, and I immediately stopped after reading a couple posts because I'm like, I'm going to have to do something with this. Um, so, of course, I give credit to him in the website and on the Kickstarter, but that's where the idea originally came from, and I just frigging ran with it because I didn't have a choice. I kind of had to do something with it. So this was one of those ideas that once it jumped into your head, it took on a life of its own. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. No. And like I said, I the, the reason I wrote about it is because I couldn't not write about it. I very much understand that feeling. There are plenty of ideas that have... Uh weaseled their way into my brain and just have to get out. Uh, you've just done it way better than I am ever able of uh, creating. So I'm very impressed with all of your work, JM. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's been really interesting. And I, I wanted to give it a long development cycle. I started writing this um, about publicly about a year and a half ago. And I just wanted to give myself time and uh, explore doing a Patreon where I just did had a consistent schedule, and it's been really fun forcing myself to write about this week after week, 
because not every post is my favorite post, but there's something about the ready practice of doing it over and over again that you really get to some great ideas, I think. Oh, I absolutely agree. Watching you work uh, has been really fun. Uh, the website, uh, the Patreon, of course, links for all of that will be in the show notes. Uh, the website contains all of the work you've been doing, mm-hmm. stuff for 5e, stuff for Pathfinder, yep. monsters, history of the city. There's literally everything right here. There's amazing art. There's your entire uh, body of work here that we can look at and follow along. Even finally got a map, which was a long time coming. Very important mm-hmm. for uh, a campaign setting. Uh, now, we've mentioned Kickstarter a couple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Kickstarter for the Salt and Wounds City is live today. Yeah. So uh, follow the link in the show notes for that. Uh, before we get into some of the other things we want to talk about and some details, I- I'm just curious. Uh, with all the work you've been doing, what has brought you to the point of starting? That was always the plan. Um, I, I want to try doing something that's a little bit different, which is I want to do, I want time to noodle around and get my work in front of people and doing, and also do the long burn promotion. Cause I've done Kickstarters in the past and they're great because you really focus on promoting something for a month, but it kind of drained me. So I'm like, can I do this in a more sustainable way where I'm telling people about this and I'm building an audience, but I'm not burning myself out. So plus I just wasn't ready to write the complete book yet. Um, a year and a half ago, or, you know, a year ago. So it was really nice giving myself the time to explore and to develop and try things out. And, oh, that didn't work. And, oh, get a comment about this. And the reason the Kickstarter now is uh, it's time for me to level up the work. Um, I don't want Salt and Wounds to be, you know, my blog posts. I want it to be this gorgeous, complete book and a couple other supplements that are, you know, every bit as well-designed and well-put-together as what you'd expect from any publisher. Wonderful, wonderful. And if the uh, the work and the art on your website is evidence of what is going to be in this final product, I am amazingly excited to get that book and see what it's all about. Oh, yeah. And I just a shout out to the artist who was Jeffrey Chen. Uh, he did amazing work. Uh, the the bizarre scene and the terrace diagram, butchery diagram, um, and that that sample character for the god butcher with the mutated arm. Yeah, no, he did he did amazing work. So why don't we get into a little bit more about salt and wounds? I'm I'm sure mm-hmm. there are some people who don't know a lot about it, and there's some people that probably do know a lot about it. So why don't we just (laughs) hit that middle ground, share a couple details. You gave us the high concept pitch a few minutes ago. Uh, Just tell us a little bit more about uh, the world, about the setting. Yeah. So I'll give you a little bit about the history and a little bit about how, what's going on in the city today. So historically, uh, the Trask, um, probably a little bit different than the in-game statted version, uh, is running around, uh, it's Sonoma, but it can be any fantasy world. And, of course, people have a problem of there's a random Godzilla monster that might come to your town and eat everybody. And they don't really have a good way to deal with this. So, they have a new plan. They're going to raise an army, and they're going to go after it with these 13, uh, what end up becoming Meridian uh, for the ley lines they think are in, within the Tarask, uh, harpoons. And they're going to bind it in place. These are magical harpoons that won't move. Same enchantment of immutable rods. And once they do that, once they finally get it stuck, they're going to figure out a way to kill it. So they launch this campaign. They manage to get it stuck, but the permanently killing it, not so much. And so they're encamped around this monster, and they keep having to slaughter it because it's possible it might get out, even even though it's stuck. And they're stuck up in the mountains, and the snows begin to fall, and morale is down, and some of the arcane researchers are giving up, and supplies are running out. And they realize that they might not have much to eat. But hey, look over here. There's a Shrask. And here is a supposedly inexhaustible supply of meat. Can we eat it? And in fact, yes, they can. That was 200 years ago. And so that's not really relevant to the lives of most citizens now, because this is just what they've grown up with. So now you have this huge city. I think I stated it at like around 150,000. That might change. But huge by, you know, fantasy standards. And one of the things I want to bring up is when you do vaguely medieval fantasy, one of the biggest problems throughout human history is just people getting enough calories to survive. 
So if you had a standardized, ready source of food, people would go to amazing lengths to secure that and to utilize that. And in fact, Salt and Wounds has absorbed a bunch of waves of refugees that were fleeing famines. And so in the city today, of course, at the top of the power structure are the Binder Lords, who are the descendants of these adventurers who got the Tarrasque bound. And they each control an area around where their harpoon is, and their legal authority is the command word that will unleash that harpoon. Um, the people who do most of the work are called God Butchers, which is the ceremonial order of knights that they take confinement of the Tarrasque as their holy mission. Um, and they're very good at what they do, except that about a uh, decade ago, the Tarrasque tail got loose and smashed up a city section of the city. And in the fallout of that, they created a new guild called the Marrow Miners, who also extract on the Tarrasque. Um, from there, uh, the Tarrasque extract has to be uh, processed, and there's a bunch of kind of working class people known as the Process Guild that take care of actually carving this into usable chunks. Um, the blood merchants are the merchant class. Uh, and then there's a bunch of secret societies also um, who all have kind of their own designs for the Tarrasque. Um, supposedly they're both kind of extinct, but there's the Enders who are still stuck on the mission of finally killing the thing, and there is the Circle of Release that, because they're druids, they think the Tarrasque had an important part of the world ecology, and they might be right. Um, there's been a lot more giant monsters around, because these are things that Tarrasque used to primarily feed upon. Um, and so their whole idea is to bring balance back to the world. They need to release the Tarrasque, which, of course, would kill the city. Um, in the meantime, there's a bunch of people who have nothing really to do with the Tarrasque. They're just living and breathing and dying in the city. They're developing a lot of alchemical wonders based on Tarrasque extracts, and it's kind of like an industrial revolution. Um, also, while this is happening, um, the blood and tainted water that's running off the Tarrasque has poisoned the groundwater, so they have to import tons of water to the city. Um, and that runoff, uh, it was poisoning a huge swath of the country, uh, almost going to get to the sea. So an insane druid set up an artificial ecosystem just to process this runoff. And he kind of merged with that. And that's a couple miles from town. And it's this totally alien environment that's all fungus and insects and giant frogmen that's based off of this constant flow of um, bloody water coming out of salt moons. Let's see. Is then there's more, but I don't want to go too granular. I, I, I don't even, <laughs> I don't even know where to start with that, JM. Jesus, that is yeah, so cool. Um, yeah, so that's just a little bit of what's going on. Even though it's a city, I, I want this to be a place that everyone could do a whole campaign in. Absolutely, man. You provide so many details. I love all the druid stuff. I love how the city is based on this political world based on who owns what part of this creature. Uh, I think what I want to go back to, though, you said that the Trask's tail got loose? Yeah, yeah. Um, so they're not sure what happened. Um, the god Blitchers got blamed. But basically, uh, briefly, it was able to rip its tail away from the Meridian Harpoon that was holding it in place. And it uh, one of the misconceptions, some people think the city is built on the Trask, it's built around. But what it was able to do is start thrashing its tail, and it just smashed up all the stonework underneath it, and launched thousands of boulder-like, like from a catapult, into the um, east section of the city, and just smashed the crap out of it. Um, thousands of people died, and because the political economy of Salt Moons doesn't work very well, and it's very um, oligarchical, they didn't really rebuild it. So you have this devastated slum area. Um, behind the Tarrasque, and there was this major disaster equivalent to a massive earthquake where lots of people died. Um, they still kind of don't know what happened, um, and there's been some political repercussions of that. Okay, that is a, a lot of clarification, because I had this idea in my head where the tail somehow detached, ah. <laughs> like a lizard's tail, and was just flopping around the city. So I'm, I'm glad I asked about that one. <laughs> Although that is good. Uh, that yeah, Yeah, I like that too. Um, especially because it regenerates like a lizard, that would be that would be a really interesting monster. Is just you have to fight the Tarrasque tail, just this mindless thrashing thing that you have to do enough damage to, though it'll finally still itself. Yeah, yeah, that that's where my mind went. I, I blame Final Fantasy for that, <laughs> uh, and all of those boss fights that were just 
so-and-so Ultima's arm. Well, you know, really? the Tarrasque is like a Voltron. So, because they got it all stuck, it'll detach into its own parts, which will become their own giant mechs and go smash things up. Well, there we go. Now we can take Salt and Wounds into the future and make a, uh, a, a cyberpunk game. Uh, <laughs> oh, I have to say, um, one of the coolest fan contributions someone did uh, that's on the website was um, Salt and Steam, which was uh, Salt and Wounds in like another 500 years and consciously making it steampunk. Um, and he, he gave me this core of idea and I ran with it. I just loved it because they, they had these trains made out of bone. Um, their whole like steam power is built on gasification of Tarrasque fat. Um, there's these mists that are coming through the city that are really poisonous, so everyone has to wear these funky steampunk masks. It was it was a really cool way to like take the concept even further. That is pretty awesome. I like that. Um, you know, we could spend the rest of this episode just talking about the city and everything you've created, but I'm I'm gonna express a, a little bit of self control here. We're not gonna do that because <laughs> that's just what I want to do. Uh, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. Listeners, if that's what you want, uh, swing over to Cham's website, do some reading. Uh, it's a treat. Uh, seriously, there's so much cool information there. Um, you make me blush, by the way, man. Totally blush. I guess, I guess that's why you don't have your camera on today, right? <laughs> that's exactly why. <laughs> uh, I want to do something um, a, a little bit different here. Um, I, I want to talk about what it takes to design a campaign setting like this. Uh, I, I think most GMs are ready to uh, to entertain the idea of building a homebrew world, mm-hmm. whether they just say, hey, here's a city, here's a dungeon, whatever. Yep. I mean, honestly, anytime we create something ourselves that's not out of a book off the shelf, mm-hmm. technically you're creating a homebrew setting for your game. Yep. Most, most GMs are doing that all the time, whether or not they are... Uh, investing as much work as you are, JM. So uh, I, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what it's like to build a homebrew. You have great experience in this. You have some great wisdom. I'd like you to share a little bit with us. Yeah, definitely. So um, I'll tell you the advice I've been trying to follow myself. So that one of the first things, of course, uh, and this is my advice for any creative project, just give yourself a schedule and stick to it. Um, salt and wounds is huge and there's tons of details, but that was done, you know, week after week. It didn't, it didn't happen overnight. So sometimes we encounter these things like, uh, Greyhawk, you know, they're just amazing, right? And so detailed, so rich, but that wasn't the work that happened overnight. So just give yourself that patience and, and give yourself time to develop. Um, another big design principle I believe in, uh, both for fiction and definitely for designing a homebrew world is every problem was a solution to a different problem. And I think when you have that guiding principle to your design, it adds a versatility and it gives you such a ready source of where to go next, right? So, you know, no one, no one designed salt wounds because they're like, oh, I want to create a scenario where we torture a giant monster forever, right? That wasn't on anyone's mind, but that's what happened. And why that happened is because they had a problem and they came up with a solution for it. And now that solution is a new, new generation's problem. Um, and so forth and so on. And you can take it as granular as you want. Like I said, I mentioned the runoff from the Tarrasque. So you have a problem of the Tarrasque blood, right? What are you going to do with that? Well, we'll create a fungal ecosystem to that's able to process that. Great. Okay, well, what's going to limit the growth of that? Um, then that's, that's you know, the, the current problem. Uh, the other thing, too, I, I think that you, I really recommend if you're going to design your own homebrew world is really... Think about logistics, right? Think about how people get the thing they need and what are the complications of them getting the thing they need? Because, like I said, that grounds the work and it gives you a much greater sense of what the stakes are and who cares about what. So, like I said, food, uh, water, clothing, um, struggle for power and status, all of these concerns are eternal. And if you actually design with those things in mind, I think it comes up, you come up with great design. Okay. That, that is a lot of good advice. Um, I, I think one of the things that I know I personally deal with is uh, looking at the big picture too much. Mm-hmm. When I'm uh, thinking about a campaign setting or a homebrew game, 
I always try to look at, okay, what's the world? What's out here? And then work from the outside in. And that is why I have a lot of trouble with it because I'm, I'm painting too big and oh, I'm yeah. trying to find the details. Uh-huh. And as you just said, start small. Right. Start with what matters. And uh, the, the evidence of the way you've been developing salt and wounds kind of one week at a time, mm-hmm. that's a really good pattern to follow. Yep. It, it's not sit down to write a game. Right. It, it's not sit down to write a world. It's sit down to talk about X. Yep. Okay, let me get some details out. Okay, cool. Now I know this thing. Right. Well, wait a minute. How does that factor into this? Oh, there's my next step. Exactly. And, and then that starts to snowball from there. Oh, very much so. And and I love it because you can really start with something, just that crazy idea that you love, right? You don't have to mm-hmm. figure out how the whole world works. You're just like, okay, so I want to write the story about men in powered armor, right? So that's that's your passion core. And then you have to figure out, okay, so who makes this? Why do they make it? Why do they use this instead of other things? Who opposes this and why do they oppose it? And if you do it that way, like uh, layers of a pearl from like a bit of sand, you kind of just develop this thing kind of organically and, and it, it really develops over time. Uh, the other thing too, that uh, game design principle that I love, um, do you mind if I give one more piece of advice? I know I give a bunch. Please. Okay. All, all the advice you want to give, Jam. One of the things... One of the things I think that's really common for great game design um, in when you're doing like D&D style is this idea of unexploded ordnance. So in all the wars, we've modern wars we've fought, we've dropped bombs, right? And sometimes they don't blow up or sometimes we leave landmines and they're just laying around. Doing the fantasy equivalent of that, that there's stuff buried in the ground that is a major problem that someone can just uncover. Um, in the case of the Tarrasque, it's right in front of everyone. There's this giant terror lizard that might get out. It's that thing of people know it's dangerous. Um, they kind of live there anyway. And it's great fodder for the adventurers. Uh, my last point, and this is less advice and more just a personal preference. I think when you're designing worlds, don't go for Middle Earth version 5.0. And I love Middle Earth. But if you want to play Middle Earth, play Middle Earth. And in fact, if you want to play something like Middle Earth, there are some amazing settings out there that have already been done. I think I personally am much more interested in, okay, what is, what is this world? What's really, really special about this world? Not just why the elves are a little bit different or the dwarves are a little bit different. Um, although you need some of that so people can relate, but what, what is really that, that big, you know, not to sound too Hollywood, but elevator pitch about why people would be really interested in playing in your world. That is some great advice. Uh, I know that we have talked about this on the Academy a couple times, figuring out a unique hook, something Mm -hmm. special. But what's important and and what you're telling us here, Jam, is that sometimes you have to think outside of the confines of the uniqueness of a genre. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, sticking with that high fantasy world is limiting at, at times. Oh yeah. So, so when you are saying, okay, what do I want to do special in my game? Well, uh, I'm going to do something crazy with dwarves. Yeah. Okay, great. But let's, let's break the boundaries a little bit. Let's try something different. And that's where your advice about, um, the the problems turning into solutions turning into problems kind of factors in because if you think about that one cool thing about a dwarf well then is that a a solution from something else does that cause another problem exactly and that's how you can start following that path of development right Mm -hmm. Uh, right if dwarves are the best miners and have access to all the metals what does that do to the elves right like do they need metals have they worked around metals um, yeah, thinking like that, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, so before we go a little bit further, I, I want to go backwards a second because you mentioned two things and I know because I am an interviewer and I asked before we started recording uh-huh. that these two things factor into, uh, kind of the next level of what you're doing here. Uh, you talked about Sonoma mm-hmm. and you mentioned the idea of, uh, war ordinances and uh, i know that both of those are coming together in uh, the next phase of your project here so wh- why don't we talk about that a little bit oh yeah so um i've designed salt moons to be modular 
I really want you to be able to plug it into your world. Um, and so it's really designed like that, and I think it functions well. But also, it has a place in a larger world that I call Sonoma. And when I'm doing the Kickstarter, my Patreon will be transferring to pullback, and I'll start writing about Sonoma. Uh, in the same way, just a weekly blog, um, just to flesh it out. And basically, with Sonoma, I'm designing a world that is trapped in a magical Cold War. So the world kind of looks vague, like a vaguely medieval fantasy, but the political situation is more akin to tensions between the U.S., the USSR, and China, like 60 years ago, because high magic and artifacts are the equivalent of uh, nukes and WMDs. So the great powers don't go to war with each other, and they don't use conventional armies against each other anymore. They fight these proxy wars, and they send in adventurers to recover artifacts or to steal artifacts or to assassinate great wizards. Um, and that is their war by other means. So it, in Sonoma, you can play like normal adventurers because it kind of looks the same. But realistically, when you delve that dungeon, it has political repercussions. And when you get powerful enough to be able to take on an army, you are now looked at by all the great powers and you very much factor into what's happening politically. So I got to ask. Yeah. Uh, Salt and Wounds, mm -hmm. the city, yep. is part of this larger world. Yep. Can we expect any other cities in this larger world that are as crazy and unique as salt and woods oh yeah uh i that's my goal is i want to look at creatures um artifacts and talk about basically what would a real person do with this what are the applications that no one is seeing about this um how can we play this up in a different way um i did this a little bit i designed a dungeon over on tribality called the home of 100 saved and it was a doomsday cult that thought they had to um, dig a vault and uh, hide in there. I found out later this was very similar to the Earth Dawn, um, which I'd never heard of, and I was happy to. But they, they basically dug a fallout shelter for themselves. And before they could get it properly set up, they had to flee to it. And what was their backup system, which was 100 rings of sustenance, uh, became their main source of food. But that's all they had. They ran out of torches. They Their crops weren't growing. So that was 2,000 years ago. And this is, you know, hundreds of generations in the future. So now you have these weird um, sensory-deprived creatures that have had to claw a ring of sustenance away from one of their neighbors to have their child. And that cycle, they've been trapped in that for 2,000 years. And what crawls out of that place is really bizarre and horrifying. But stuff like that where I'm really looking at, like, okay, so this artifact, this, this magic item, what are the uses that people don't see? Like, um, they, they sneak into cities with a, a decanter of water, endless water, and they flood the city, right? Um, it's all about uh, jury-rigging all this powerful magic and doing interesting things with it. And I'm still I'm still embryonic. I don't think I have any city that's as cool as Salt and Moons yet, but that's my goal, is to have multiple cities built on things other than Zafrask that are just as alien, but still have that sense of reality, because you're like, oh, yeah, that, that totally could work that way. Um, another little detail I have from the world is um, shades. You know, the undead that, you know, they can make more shades are the equivalent of smallpox. Insofar as they hunted them all down, they said they're all extinct, but they still exist in um, special containment cells. And it's believed that the great powers would unleash them upon other great powers uh, in the event of a catastrophe. Oh, that is cool. I, I love the... Cold War concept, but with magic. Oh yeah, no, I think it works really well. Um, and oh, it also, absolutely, it does. And I want to, I want to plug into that uh, kind of what we had with technology, where for a long, long time we as a society had this idea of progress and things getting better, and we just would do science and we'll we'll get better. And I think that's still valid. Uh, science has brought us amazing things, but also we developed the capacity to kill ourselves. Um, which I don't know that we were fully prepared for as a species. And in the same way, I think of this world as, oh, they're, they're going through these run ruins and they're recovering the magic of the past and wizards are getting better. And it's amazing because now they can do all these wonders. But at a certain point, um, in fact, in the last war, the major war they had, they realized, oh, we could sterilize the planet. Um, and they weren't ready for that. And that's kind of changing people's relationship to magic. See, I am the kind of player and GM where I like to embrace the quote-unquote high magic concept. Mm -hmm. 
I love having magic everywhere. Yeah. I love having magic just be very pervasive in the world. Yep. But what you are saying here is kind of the very logical conclusion or extrapolation of that world mm -hmm. that I myself have never played with or written in, but makes absolute sense and is so much more exciting. Right. Well, and and when you do high magic, I love the concept of, again, modeling it kind of with our relationship with technology is I have this amazing phone, right, that has all these amazing capacities and it's just incredible. But I can't build that phone. And I couldn't, other than a very surface level, I don't, I can't explain how it works. And as a matter of fact, as time goes on, I'm just kind of, it's just there, right? Like, I don't think about how incredible it is. And I really like taking that same approach to magic where it's around. Most people don't understand it. They use it, but they don't understand it. And, uh, except with very rare fringe cases, they're not excited by it, although they are a little afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that mindset, that goal, your intention with exploring that idea is, is what makes this so interesting as a project. Also, your drive to use items and magic and creatures in different ways. Oh, yeah. Well, because, you know, there there's amazing work and all this cool stuff. And as gamers, it's very easy to get desensitized to it, right? Like, again, the Ring of Sustenance. How amazing. It's a wondrous thing that, like, you could put on this ring and, and live forever. But once you've seen your 10th Ring of Sustenance, like, it's just, oh, well, I might need that for my character because blah, blah, blah. It's hard to, it's hard to get the wonder. And I, that's something I really love doing is plugging the wonder back in. Oh, uh, can I mention one more detail about how uh, Salt and Wounds does very much figure into what I'm designing with Sonoma? Absolutely. So I just wrote a couple weeks ago about um, an incident where there was a conventional army that was going to invade Salt and Wounds. Um, and Salt and Wounds was going to get conquered, and there was everyone's like, okay, this is just going to happen. Um, but one of the Binder Lords came out uh, and addressed the army and was like, okay, if you take ten more steps closer to the city, we will unbind the Jurassic. And And the ward's like, no, you won't. And they're like, no, no, we very much will. This is this is our holy mission. Uh, if you conquer the city because you're not holy, you, you the trask will get out anyway. So we might as well have it have that happen now, so you don't get anything. Um, and the warlord was going to call their maybe bluff, maybe not bluff. But he actually got killed by his own lieutenants because they had families and they did not want to see that happen. So that was the first incidence in Sonoma, um, and it got uh, it had political repercussions of basically them establishing the. Um, the concept of in in game of mutual assured destruction, right? Like if you do this, we all die. Wow, that uh, I'm just gonna say this over and over and over during this episode. Get used to it. That is so cool. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah. This is this is definitely the type of setting that I want to play in. I love playing in settings that are that uh, weird kind of dystopian future where there's all these giant concepts to deal with. I mean, I'm, I unabashedly love Shadowrun. Mm -hmm. oh, and yeah. a, a lot of what you're talking about with Sonoma and Salt and Wounds is kind of Shadowrun in a fantasy version. Oh, very much so. Yeah, that's something... Because, again, with Shadowrun's a good uh, comparison because it is that notion of you're quasi-legal and people will deny you if you get caught um, and you can't necessarily go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, so you have to be sneaky. Yeah, no, so I'm very much uh, bringing the shadow run to what, what looks like standard fantasy, but functions much more like super spy, shadow run, cold war. Man, well, I don't know why we're having this interview. Let's just play, play this game for, for, the, for the rest of the show. Uh, but uh, we're not going to do that. Um, we're we're going to go uh, backwards again to something you talked about, JM. You kind of talked about how you were creating some parallel concepts in Sonoma to the real world. Mm -hmm. And I want you to expand a little bit on translating real world issues, problems, concepts into the game world and, and how you work on that. Right. Okay. So, um, so we talked about unexploded ordinance, which is totally a thing. And uh, in doing a fantasy setting, you just turn that up to 11. Because it's not just the unexploded ordinance of World War II, it's the unexploded ordinance of the Dragon Aboleth War, say, 10,000 years ago, right? But that's still, 
in the ground and it can still affect what happens. Um, we talked about modeling it after a, a real world political situation. And if, unless I'm mistaken, like, so the best fantasy does this, um, uh, Song of Ice and Fire is, I believe the, what's happening to them politically is modeled after the War of the Roses in England. So I think that's really cool when you can take a real world conflict or, uh, era and translate what's happening politically into what's happening in your world. Um, as I mentioned, I'm always obsessed with logistics. And I think that grounds the work and makes it relatable. So even as I'm talking about this magical Cold War, I'm developing cultures that deal with this in different ways, I'm still looking at people as people uh, and trying to figure out how do they get what they need? How do they get food? How do they get water? Um, how do they get status? Right. Uh, and then lastly, yeah, it's that relationship to magic, um, trying to model it after something I know in my own life, which is my relationship with technology. And then as far as other real world stuff, I'm still, I'm still developing it. So I'm not, I'm not sure what other real world stuff I'm going to bring in other than the fact that I really believe one of the great things about humor, humans are we're not necessarily great at creating. We are very good at tinkering. We are very good at finding unintended uses for things. And so I want to really plug that into Sonoma of a lot of times the, the modern day humans didn't necessarily invent the magic, but they're finding new uses for it and they're finding unintended uses for it. And they are surprising people because they are tinkering and creating something new. And in the same way that that is how they make their way through their world, I think that's something that I really want to do to delight uh, my players and GMs. I, I love the idea of figuring out new uses for existing things on a global scale oh yeah mm -hmm. uh on the academy several times we have had shows where we talked about weird ways to use spells or items to overcome problems oh yeah and and, and how a really good gaming session can be focused on how to use the most simple most mundane thing to bypass a trap or figure out some really cool, creative way to get around an encounter that I, as the GM, may have created. Oh, and that's something that I, I love about tabletop RPGs in particular, is the creative uses for things. I think that's one of... There's a couple of features about doing gaming on tabletop that make it special and, and especially worthwhile, I think, which is, of course, time with your friends, um, the camaraderie, the how much you can get into the character, but also that creativity, right? Because if it's just about hacking and slashing through a dungeon and all your spells function uh, as combat modifiers, computer can do that better and faster than you can do at a table, right? But mm -hmm. saying, mm -hmm. oh, I, I want to cast um, Magic Missile on to drop that bee's nest to distract that person, right? That's something that Nestle isn't designed in a video game, but can easily be ad hoc designed, and I think it adds so much more enjoyment to my play. I absolutely agree. And figuring out those solutions during a game in a small, focused setting is always really fun and really creative. Uh, the challenge that you have created for yourself, JM, is how <laughs> to do that on a global scale. Oh, yeah, because I love challenges. And because as a GM, I know well true that when you approach a project, you just want to go bigger and better all the time. <laughs> And yep. I, I fall prey to that many, many times in my own writing and own design work. Uh, so I, I have a healthy respect for the challenge you have set for yourself here, JM. Well, uh, do you want to hear about some of my brainstormy things for Sonoma? I got, I'll give you like five minutes of some stuff I'm thinking about. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> okay, okay. So the first thing is I've kind of started to outline the strata for the different historical eras. And the reason I want to do that is I want to figure out um, which ruins were for which uh, things as a way to consolidate dungeon design, right? So there was an era of high religiosity. So if you go to dungeons from that era, um, they are usually temples. And there was an era where they were being invaded by extraplanar forces. So if you go to that era's dungeons, you know, dug deep down, um, it's a lot of portal things and base camps, right? Um, and then one of the things with that is different era their language is increasingly alien. And so as an adventurer, you might need to learn the language of, um, it's not going to be the abolist, but say the abolist, right? 
But not only do you need to learn that to navigate the dungeon, but learning that language has um, gameplay effects for you. Because maybe that language is driving you insane, or maybe that uh, uh, language is actually making you more susceptible to other things. Um, so that's one uh, concept I'm playing with. Another concept I'm playing with is um, illusion magic as the basis for propaganda. And so you have uh, the good guys, um, who may actually be the good guys, but e- even if they are, they're still based a lot of using illusion magic to weave a certain narrative. And so their power structure is paladins and illusionist wizards. Um, and then you have uh, what I what I uh, try and model a little bit after the Soviet Union. And one of their big solutions is they just throw men at the problems. So their big power structure is they train a lot of monks and they have like state trained monks and they also do a lot of warlocks. So like if you don't have the discipline to become a monk, they'll just turn you into a warlock. Um, and that's the quickest, easiest way that they can get you to the power level where you can compete. And so, yeah, those are some of the pawns that I'm playing with. Wow. Oh, man. Jam, that is so cool. That is, uh, I really liked, uh, I really liked a bit with the warlocks and the monks. Oh, yeah, because that's a combination you never see together, right? No, no, not at all. Um, I mean, the, the warlock is one of my favorite classes. And mm-hmm. I, I love the themes of the warlock. Uh, we talked about this on one of our uh, detention episodes a while back when we focused on the warlock. I love mixing and matching the warlock with different class combinations just because of the weird, crazy things you can do with it from a mechanical standpoint. Uh-huh. The the story standpoint, though, of making a deal to accomplish something mm-hmm. is just absolutely fascinating to me. Yeah. It's one of my favorite tropes to write about and experiment oh, yeah. with and think about uh-huh. creatively. So. Yep incorporating that concept into the larger world just really snags my attention and gets me personally engaged. Right. Well, and it's all about scaling up, right? Because so a warlock as an individual is making a deal with a higher power um, for their ends. So what does that look like mm-hmm. if a state doesn't worship a god and have that kind of like uh, uh, clergy god relationship? But what if they make like a transactional deal with a patron? Like, okay, so we need soldiers. Um, we're going to force people to sign pacts with you. Here's what we want from you. Here's what we will give to you on a on a societal scale. Wow, that is awesome. Uh, so, so JM, you're you're creating this fantastic world. You've got a lot of challenges ahead of you uh, for dealing with all this, but you have an outstanding foundation with salt and wounds to build upon. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, however, uh, the true point of what we've been talking about here is your challenge of Kickstarter. So oh, yeah. let's transition over to the Kickstarter project. For Salt and Wounds, which is live today. Follow yep. the link in the show notes. Go check it out. Uh, we, we talked at the very beginning of this episode about how uh, the Kickstarter is really to take Salt and Wounds to the next level and, and get that book into reality. Yep. So my first question, before we even talk about the specifics, uh, how much of it is ready? H- how much of it are you still working on? How much is still being planned? Right. So um, what's... What's everything that you see published, which is a novel's worth of uh, materials already written, um, and I have about half a much as much again also written. The things that I really need to do after the Kickstarter is uh, one is editing, and by that I mean editing myself and hiring an editor because I'm a good writer, but I've definitely discovered I'm not a really good editor for myself, and so that's something I always factor in. I can't need editing. Um, and then it's going to be a lot of game design and uh, and playtesting, right? Because I have these cool concepts. Now the challenge will be to ground this into gameplay mechanics that are just as compelling and support that that fictional construct. And I'm very fortunate. Um, I know a bunch of amazing designers um, who have already agreed to help or agreed to uh, pay them. Um, and so I'm really excited. Actually, I get to work with on this project with my gaming heroes, a uh, gentleman by the name of Akil Hooper, who is actually one of the lead designers for Fallout New Vegas. Um, he's a personal friend. He likes my work, and uh, he wanted to work on it. So I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> Absolutely. That's very exciting. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm super excited. So I would say, I would say we're about... Basically, we got the rough draft. What it's going to be is the next three polished layers of draft. Okay. Um, which is going to be a lot of crunch, a lot of playtesting of the crunch, which, of course, um, I'm inviting my Kickstarter backers to join in with, um, and some editing. And then also just um, wrangling art and design. 
Cool, cool. So it, it's good to hear that you have a lot of stuff already done and ready. Uh, and it's yeah. also oh, yeah. good to hear that you clearly have a, a specific plan and outline for what is yet to be done. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's the other thing, too, is I one of the things I want to use the Kickstarter for is people really want to be involved in the creative project. Um, not just necessarily on a monetary level. They they really want this to be this community creation. And I, I fully support that. You know, that's one of the things I definitely try to do with my Patreon as well. Although that was in a much more rougher level. But I, I want the feedback of my backers. You know what I mean? I want their input and their suggestions to actually shape Salt and Wounds and make it better. Cool, cool. Yeah, getting the community involved is always a good thing. Oh, very much so, because it's an amazing community. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And with, with such an amazing project like this, there's there's lots of room for inspiration uh, and ideas to be contributed. Oh, very much so. Yeah, and actually already, you know, I've had some amazing suggestions from my patrons. Um, they've definitely helped me improve the work. Like I said, we've had some amazing fan contributions that I'm still uh, looking into ways I can, uh, you know, incorporate in. Um and I'm really looking forward to the, I'm sure the Kickstarter is going to have a larger scale compared to my Patreon. And I'm really looking forward to what the community comes up with, what they suggest, and how they help me improve my work in ways that I can't even conceive of now. Outstanding. Yeah, definitely. So uh, let, let's talk a, a little bit about the Kickstarter specifically. Uh, why don't you share a little bit about uh, some of the pledge levels and reward tiers? Yeah. Um, so the pledges go from uh, $5 to $250. Um, one of the coolest little rewards, I'm actually offering terrasse jerky. <laughs> uh, which, okay, I'm going to have to do a legal disclaimer. It's not actually terrasque. It is, in fact, alligator. Um, but it will be repackaged to basically look like it came from Salton's. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> um, uh, I did not expect you to say that at all, JM. I, <laughs> I, I, I expected, hey, you know, we've got books, we've got... PDS, we've got art, we've got this, we've got that, maybe we have dice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure, no. sure. We got, we got all that stuff. But let's talk about the terrasse jerky first. Let's lead with, let's lead with the strongest one. <laughs> oh, well, well, there you go, folks. I don't think I've ever talked to anyone in my career history on the RPG Academy about a Kickstarter campaign where the leadoff reward is terrasse jerky. <laughs> first in the world, first in Kickstarter. Here we go. Well, okay. So now, now I'll go to actual after after teasing with that. I'll go to the actual nuts and bolts. So yeah, um, no, we're definitely going to be doing books and PDFs. Um, we're we're designed from like five to fifty dollars. It's all more and more PDFs, including some bonus PDFs that I think really work well with the city, um, including uh, the Alchemist for Five E by Rich Howard. So whatever your support level. If you want PDFs, we can drown you in PDFs, and they're going to be great, and I'm really excited to offer them. All right, so at $5, you are a vagrant, you know, um, and you get the player's handbook, which is going to offer a lot of character customization options, and the Terrasse Touch Mutation Supplements, which is all about what the Terrasse blood and that taint does to characters, to creatures, and even to the land itself. Um, at $20, you get both those supplements, and, and that's a process guild member, and you get a the whole campaign setting book, which we estimate is going to be about 150 pages. We'll go longer if we do stretch goals, but um, yeah, that's everything that you need to run a campaign. Um, from there, we do $35 for the water hauler, and that includes an adventure, um, which is the one that we featured on the GM showcase, which is all about the adventurers being horrifically mutated and being tasked with an alchemist to go collect something from the Heart's Blood Marsh and explore that and survive that. Uh, that also comes with a book I'm reading with one of my patrons called Alchemy of Blood and Body. And what that specifically is about is do that thing that adventurers always want to do, which is, okay, so I killed this monster. Um, can I, can I make something out of its scales? Can I, can I make something out of its, the poison sacks in its mouth? And yes, yes, in fact, you can. Um, and that book is all about what people do with the Tarasque, um, some drugs, um, some character customization options, but also more generally, like how you can make use of magical creatures. Uh, the one I'm most excited about is the $50 Marrow Miner level, which is all digital rewards, but it's over a dozen PDFs, including the one I'm really excited to offer, which is the 5e Alchemists, 
uh, my design note essays, which are all about my thinking when I made Salt and Loons, and then how to apply that to either you're running a Salt and Loons campaign and, and personalizing it, or when you're making your own campaign setting. Uh, it also includes tons of digital goodies like all the token files for virtual tabletop play, um, digital bookmarks you can print out, um, a digital GM screen that you can print out. Um, everything we offer digitally is all with that. $75 is the Blood Merchant level, which is all all of that, plus a signed and personalized hard copy of the setting guide. Now, some of my uh, early adopters were saying, well, 75 is a little bit much for a, a hard copy, and I agree with them completely. If you want a hard copy and you don't have $75, you can add $20 to any pledge level, and I'll get you a hard copy. So if you are just really about that hard copy, just a $5 pledge plus $20, you get the hard copy. But I really think doing the 75 pledge is worth it because, of course, you're supporting me, you're supporting our work, and uh, it'll be personalized, and it includes all the PDFs. Now, I led with the Terrasque Jerky, but the 150 God Butcher level, that's when we start getting into swag. Um, I recently read a really interesting essay that I heard about on the RPG Academy about, I think it was the eight kinds of fun. Ah, the ghost of Jim McClure. Oh, yeah. He rears his ugly head once again. <laughs> that ghost gets around. Yeah. Um, he's such a cool guy. But um, yeah, it was really revelatory to me because it just broke down. Okay, so sometimes players play because they want time with their friends. Sometimes players play for this power fantasy. and But sometimes players play because they really like all the detail work and all these little sensory delights that go into a game. I didn't understand that before I read that essay. Um, I thought minis were cool, but they were never make or break the game for me. So after reading that essay, I really wanted to put in some cool uh, physical artifacts into the campaign. Um, so I came up with Terastriki. Uh I have a friend who is a geeky candle maker. She just did her second really successful Kickstarter, and we're going to do custom Salt and Wounds um, candles that are basically the lorries that they were created from uh, Terrasque Tallow. Um, there'll be dice that you can get. There'll be all kinds of options. And at 150 and the 250 level, the last level of Binder Lords, you get different uh, kinds of swag that are only offered for that, and it's just about bringing sensory delight to your game. And also included with that is you can get an invitation to actual canonical play at a convention or online. So yeah, whatever budget you have, we, I think, have amazing rewards for you. And obviously, I want this to fund, and the more higher pledges we get, the better. But if you can pledge $5, that is so greatly appreciated. Um, I, I love you for it. And I, I really want to get you some amazing books, even at that level. Outstanding. Outstanding. I, I love seeing a project that has a wide range of reward levels. Mm -hmm. And very clearly, all of these levels reflect your passion as a creator and designer to get your product out there and have mm -hmm. it be accessible to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I should mention there's one more really cool reward. I think that if you really want to invest in the Kickstarter, I, I think is worth checking out. As I mentioned, um, in Salt and Wounds, these uh, Meridian Harpoons can be moved if you know the command word for them. Um, and that is what gives the Binder Lords their legal authority. So there's only 11 left because two have already been claimed. But at the Binder Lord level, uh, you're going to help choose, with my approval, the command word for your Meridian House's harpoon. You'll get to talk to me about how you want the house designed. Um, you'll, you'll get in a couple, um, you know, exclusive, uh, brainstorming sessions. But ultimately, you decide what is the command word that gives that binder lord or lady, uh, their legal authority. And knowing it can actually allow, uh, a character in game to free the Jurassic. If one of those code words is not bananas, <laughs> I don't I don't know what's going on with this world. I, I don't I don't know what's going on with this world. Well, and that would be great because maybe bananas is like a made up nonsense word in their world. Like it doesn't mean anything. It, it's just bananas. In, just... in a world that is populated by the mutation of an unkillable beast that has mad druids running around and. Uh, Cold War high magic buried in the centuries of Earth. I don't think anyone knows what a banana is. So yes, bananas is an awesome made-up word. Well, and we could we could make it fantasy by putting in like a um, a hyphen and like a umlaut, <laughs> and it's spelled with like three Y's. And yeah, a yeah. Couple extra. Yeah, the wise man somewhere. is dying in your arms, bleeding all all over you, and he's like, "I must tell you the command word. It is 
Banani. I am sorry, banana. <laughs> that is exactly how it would go down. Well, there we go. I mean, you just said it. You're the creator. I think that's canon at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, uh, that's a joke that we that came out of the actual play session we did for Salt Notes. Um, I, just in case your listeners don't know. And one of the things I brought up in that actual play, and again, something that I love, uh, was a Joss Whedon quote is, you know, tell a story, make the story as dark um, uh, as you want. But every once in a while, tell a joke. Um, and in that case, the, one of the jokes we told is joking that the command word was bananas. But also... In this very, very um, tense high drama scene where they were interrogating a corpse using you know, the magic of speak to dead, the the character who was doing the inter- interrogation was dressed up like Kermit the Frog, and that's one of the things <laughs> I love about D anD D is, you know, again you can really get into it and really be involved in the story and emotionally invested, and every once in a while something happens that's just ridiculous and bizarre, and you gotta laugh. Oh, man, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, I, I love incorporating uh, humor and, and levity to, to break the severity and seriousness of a moment. Uh, I see that a lot in horror and, uh, and gothic games that I enjoy running. Uh, being able to break is very human nature. So oh, yeah. doing that in-game adds that level of humanity to what's happening. Oh, and, and it allows us as people playing the game to stay in character a little bit better. Because if if we break in the real world and say, all right, all right, great, 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 let, let's refocus, you know, it gives us that chance to take a breath yeah. and, and get back into the game. Right. And as a player and as a GM, being able to learn that rhythm of mm-hmm. like tension, 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 release, tension, yep. tension, tension, release, it improves the experience so much and it makes it so, can make it so satisfying. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, so we talked about the the backer levels, the rewards. Uh, we kind of run the gamut from very uh, very inexpensive and accessible to a a very serious investment with a a hefty rewarding payout. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what else are you thinking about here for the Kickstarter campaign? What's some of the stretch goals you have? Oh uh, yeah, for us. So I wanted the stretch goals to be very focused. Um, and so the first one we have, so the campaign is gold for 5,000, um, uh, which I think is very much doable. And honestly, getting to 5,000, I would be super excited because that's enough for me to do this justice. And I, I want that. But I would not be surprised if it goes higher. And I, I wanted there to be excitement from that. And I wanted there to be rewards for that. So the first couple stretch goals we have is at 6,000. Um, I ex- really explain the character options. And I will include in the player's guide a character customization option for every 5th edition class. So um, all of these will be very much uh, related to Salt and Wounds, but wide enough that you can use them elsewhere. So things like the Hemiotropic Wizard School or um, a new Paladin Oath of Binding, where they are all obsessed about keeping dangerous creatures and monsters and magic contained. Um, next, uh, we have I want to do a whole new module about an insane alchemist that lives on the outskirts of town that the player characters are tasked with investigating. Um, and that's 75 or 7,500. And then at 10,000, I want to do a proper Salt and Wounds bestiary. Um, I've gold to do at least 10 new monsters in the campaign setting guide. But if we reach $10,000, I'm going to hire six of my favorite designers and artists, and we're going to do a full 50 new monster Salt and Wounds bestiary. Um, again, all of this stuff, my goal is to make it modular where, oh, this totally fits in the salt and wounds, but this could show up elsewhere. And here's how to do that. Um, I'm really excited about the next tier, which is all maps, swamps, and dungeons. And, uh, basically there's two kind of areas that are not salt wounds that are adjacent to it that I really want to expand on. Um, first is the hearts blood marsh. The next is the cap caps, which is, some uh, what are called Dwergo, which are like the the antecedents of dwarves, um, ruins underneath, and there's Ancade tunnels, the smugglers' tunnels. Um, so there's a mega dungeon underneath Saltmoons, that's the Cap Caps, and there's this weird fungal ecosystem outside Saltmoons called the Heart's Blood Marsh. And so at uh, 12,500, I want to do a mega map for the Heart's Blood Marsh, which is a bunch of interlocking tiles. So you can remix it, you can run it different ways, and also, while it is very much the Heart's Blood Marsh, it can be any weird swamp that you have in mind for your game. Um, at fifth, at, at 15,000, um, I want to do a full supplement that's just about the Heartless March. What lives there, 
how to run it, um, the characters there. Uh, at 17,500, I want to do, again, that modular uh, mega map for the cap caps where it's a bunch of interlocking tiles that you get to explore. Um, and then at 20,000, I want to do a full supplement. Uh, I'm sorry, not a supplement, a mega dungeon for it. So a bunch of different levels talking about how it shifts because of the terrasquakes that are happening and what people find there. Cause I, I'd really be excited to design that. Um, and our last tier, and honestly, I, you know, usually people say after this is locked. After this, I don't know what I'd do, but, uh, at 30,000, I would start writing and start commissioning an adventure path. And that would be a whole story that would take characters from level one to level 15, all based in salt wounds. Um, you're going to start in the Tailstones, what I meant, that section I mentioned that's still destroyed. And right now it's controlled by criminal syndicates. And you are going to bring order to the area either by, if you're good, defeating um, and dismantling the criminal organizations. And if you're evil, by actually taking them over. And so a bunch of stuff is going on there. There's uh, terrestrial-derived narco- narcotics that are having horrible effects to the people. And there's all this rule by thuggery and crime. And that's what the... Uh, characters are going to be thrust into from there having made a name for themselves they are going to be caught up in the machinations of the binder lords um, be designated as the chosen champions and it's going to be really interesting whether they survive that or not because the binder lords are not nice people um and then lastly the last section of it it's all about those secret societies i mentioned um there's actually a prophecy that the terrasque is going to be freed um it doesn't say for how long it doesn't say what's going to happen from that but Everyone knows on such and such a date, the Tarrasque is going to get out. So the only question is, what happens after that? Is it going to be quickly and relatively painlessly recaptured? Is it going to be unleashed on the world? Is it going to be finally killed? Or is a very secret thing um, that you can actually find out the spoilers on, on a link from the Kickstarter is going to happen? Um, that's something I won't even mention because it's not something I want players knowing. Um, but yeah, uh, it, like I said, the spoilers, there is actually a link on the Kickstarter. So if nothing else, um, you can find out what the absolute worst case nightmare scenario for Saltonwoods would be. And it's probably not what you think. I mean, I didn't expect Jurassic Jerky, so <laughs> I can only imagine the horrors that you have in store for us. Wow, JM, you've got such a great plan put together for this project, for the Kickstarter campaign. This is an outstanding piece of work that you are doing here uh, for your your players, for the rest of us out here in, in the wide world of gaming. Everyone, please check out the show notes. Swing over to the Kickstarter. Look for that uh, super secret link that JM just told us about. Check out his website. Check out everything else that we've already talked about. JM, thank you so much for talking with me about this today. I am so excited for the Salt and Wounds Kickstarter. Thank you so much for having me. Um, as you can imagine, I am also very excited about the Salt and Wound <laughs> Kickstarter. And also, you know, um, like I said, you said check out the website. That's going to remain free. Please, please, please check out the Kickstarter um, and share it. Even if you can't contribute, the sharing makes such a difference. And drop me a line. Um, I love to talk to fans. I love to talk to other gamers. Wonderful. And, of course, we will have all that information in the show notes, uh, there's a whole lot of stuff crammed in there for you guys. So check it out. Swing over to Kickstarter and uh, back this project. Let's get JM the money to start working and uh, and bringing all of this good stuff into reality for us. For myself, for JM, for Michael, and everyone at the RPG Academy Network, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out the RPGAcademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. 
We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the DriveThruRPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.